Marx's understanding of how capitalism functions is based upon an implicit sort of metaphysics that he ends up adopting. Now, most obviously, he adopts Hegel's thinking with respect to metaphysics and dialectics and all that good stuff. But further back than that, even, uh, my argument is that there is an actual Aristotelian foundation to how Marx is elaborating the logic of capitalist production, uh, especially in volume one of Capital. So the current chapter that I'm working on is basically arguing that the main thread of concepts that Marx moves through in Volume 1 of Capital. So uh, these are the commodity, uh, the value form, uh, the valorization process, and then, as he puts it at the very end, value valorizing itself. These four concepts map directly on to the four concepts that form what I call the sort of spinal cord of Aristotle's metaphysics, namely substance, form, uh, energeia, or activity, and entelecheia, or complete reality, which uh, Aristotle expresses as thought thinking itself, and that's his concept of God. It's just very striking that, you know, Aristotle uses the language of thought thinking itself, Marx explicitly uses the language of value valorizing itself, and I am arguing that this is not coincidental at all, but it has to do with uh, his use of this same basic framework of categories. Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jason. And today we have with us a special guest, Chris. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, uh, I'm Chris Mano. Uh, I'm a doctoral candidate in philosophy from Stony Brook University. I'm a Marx and Aristotle scholar, so I'm finishing up my dissertation and doctorate on those two thinkers. And I'm currently an adjunct professor of philosophy at uh, the University of Portland. Awesome. So today we are going to be talking about Marxism and reason. And why it is a subject that we should actually contend with as Marxists and not just assume that we're being reasonable. <laughs> because I think that that's the thing is everyone assumes that reason isn't really something that you need to contend with. It is just using your common sense to determine what is reasonable. You know, if I might interject here, Thomas Hobbes uh, in The Leviathan has a nice little statement to exactly this effect where he says, there's no better testament to the universality of reason than the fact that everyone is satisfied with his portion of it. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> exactly. brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I mean, when we talk about reason, what exactly do we mean by the word reason? It's obviously not what I just mentioned, just... Sure, absolutely. I mean... What we mean by reason is, I think, uh, I mean, arguably one of the most difficult yet important questions philosophically that we can ask ourselves. Um, that's why how we, that's why I started out with it. You know? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Start, start off with the, the haymakers. Right into the fire. Exactly. Start with the simple questions, you know. <laughs> um, you know, as it pertains to the tradition of thinking that Marx is engaging with and that Marxism, of course, itself more broadly even is coming from, uh, reason is, on Hegel's view, most obviously, synonymous with metaphysics. So for Hegel, the world is reason. The cosmos, if you like, however you want to put it, uh, is governed by laws of reason, and we can know how the world works by the use of our reason. So for thinkers like Hegel, uh, reason is a faculty of human beings as subjects. We can use our reason to know about the world, but it's not just a faculty. It also pertains to the objective structure of the world itself, we might say. 
Uh, and I would argue that Marx is still operating in that tradition, even though he's discarding some of the more idealistic elements of that school of thinking, let's say. We we read the introductory chapters to Eclipse of Reason by Horkheimer and um, One Dimensional Man by uh, Marcuse, and the one of the key takeaways from it is that the Enlightenment, from both of them actually, is that the Enlightenment sort of did a, did away with or began to chip away at the concept of an objective reason and both hegel and marx are operating uh underneath un- under that sort of umbrella of objective reason still hmm. uh, are they are they coming out of the enlightenment and um having not fully engaged with a type of reason that has stripped it of objectivity is that what i'm understanding uh i i think that's correct in part so i i, I definitely think that they are both thinkers within the enlightenment tradition you know when we think Absolutely, of the yeah. enlightenment right um we're often thinking about this sort of values that enlightenment thinkers are so apt to emphasize like reason like freedom and things like this and these have sort mm-hmm. of really shaped uh the modern world and of course have shaped modern thinking and philosophy obviously at the is at the forefront of all of this um you're right and horkheimer does in fact want to point out in eclipse of reason that this sort of critical project of enlightenment was tearing down a lot of the dogmatic religious mythologies that were mm-hmm. governing societies in the pre-capitalistic world, right? Uh, so if you think of like the world of feudalism, I mean, you basically have various ways in different places, but sort of theocratic societies in many, many ways, at least. Uh, the Enlightenment is challenging all that and is challenging the dogma of religion. And mm-hmm. consequently, it's also challenging these ideas about objective reality. And noticeably with the progression of the Enlightenment, and this is what Horkheimer is trying to point out, I think, critically, we become more sort of introspective as thinkers. We start thinking about reason not as the structure of the world outside of ourselves, but simply as a subjective faculty that we bring to bear on a world that we, as Kant would have it, let's say, can't know in itself. Um, we can't bridge the gap between subject and object. Now, Hegel's whole mission and the whole mission of most of the German idealists was to build that bridge again to show that actually uh, subjects and objects are in fact united and reason is the unifying common element between these two things. Uh, again, I would argue that Marx himself is also engaging with you know the world on this basis too. Uh, but of course, the thing that has to be emphasized here is that the notion of reason that thinkers like Hegel and Marx are advocating for is precisely an anti-dogmatic one. So they're not suggesting we just go back to the dogmatic thinking of, you know, church theologians, obviously, or anything silly like this. Uh, rather, they're trying to argue for a more robust concept of reason in history uh, that is sort of constantly progressing with human society itself. Right. Doesn't Hegel says, I, I, I jotted this down, it's like a paraphrasing, but that reason is imminent within history and like that it, it yes. is in which and through which it fulfills itself. So his re- his his conception of reason is just as dialectical as his conception of everything, as opposed to the liberal capitalist 
positivist notion of reason as like a sort of objective scientific uh it's immutable from one period to the next is that right uh yeah i i mean i do think that there are immutable sides to reason for hegel too um but you're absolutely right that the sort of unfolding as hegel likes to put it using his sort of mysterious language at times of reason uh is a historical development it's not something that we just have ready made in our brains just as you know homo sapiens or whatever uh and that we just have to like flip a switch and turn on it requires historical progress and development and you know you could make progress in terms of reason and you could make regress in terms of reason too as a matter of fact um, and I think this is also something, uh, again, that Marx is acutely aware of, too, in his understanding of, you know, historical materialism and how uh, there's sort of a progression in terms of how human civilization has developed over, you know, the last 6,000 years or so. Why don't we, de- why don't we define what uh, objective reason actually is? Just if someone's, appro- if someone's approaching, is turning on this podcast and has never heard the term object- objective reason. What is objective reason? As as differentiated from subjective and instrumental, which we'll get into a little bit later. So uh, objective reason, uh, I would say, is a kind of reason or a way of viewing reason that is, uh, how do I say, that thinks about reason as applying to the outside world to the entire world if you you might want to say so the entirety of everything that exists right exactly exactly so like the idea of objective reason you know as sort of classically formulated by thinkers i mean like plato and aristotle most obviously uh is that the world is governed by reason that not just our this is not just a projection from our human minds but that really out there the way in which nature works the way in which physics works all that good stuff uh, is rational ultimately in nature and that's how we can know things about what's going on out there by the use of our reason we can connect with that objective world so objective reason it refers to this sort of uh rich kind of full idea that reason is you know, as the X-Files would have it, it's out there. It's out in the world, yeah. right? Um, whereas subjective reason, by way of contrast, <clears throat> is the idea that reason is simply a faculty that we have as subjects. And we can't know if it's really out there in the world. That's not, you know, for us to know, and we don't have access to that kind of knowledge. Uh, instead, it's simply a tool for human beings. So, wait, uh, so that... Oh, man, that is... Uh, that I, okay, I I love the distinction that you just made, and it's uh, making me think so many thoughts. Where, uh, where would Kant fall on that um, way of dividing the world up? Because I think that Kant uh, really lays the groundwork for uh, all of you know the, the the readings that we read today were you know German philosopher well originally german philosophers who were reading hegel who was reading kant it's all sort of like the background is all laid by kant here so where is he falling on that how does he conceive of uh objective versus subjective reason so asking the easy questions today (laughs) that's a very difficult question to answer um because The real answer is that you can't put him in one camp or the other. Kant is trying to the best of his ability, I would argue with some problems, Mm. but to sort of synthesize both of these claims as well as he can. 
Uh, now, most famously, Kant says when it comes to reality itself, the Ding on Zick in German, or the thing in itself, right, the, the world outside of ourselves, this we can't know, actually. Um, and so from that angle, we might say that, okay, Kant is sort of moving us away from the idea of objective reason, since he's saying, well, we can't make strong metaphysical claims about what reality itself is like outside of our human perspective. But the reason why Kant is very tricky to put in one of these two boxes here is because the way he describes uh, the intellect or the human mind or just the rational mind, I guess, more broadly, is in terms of universal features of reason or universal concepts that in certain obvious ways are objective precisely insofar as they are universal. So Kant is definitely, I think, part of this move, uh, I think, which I think you're pointing to, Kevin, um, towards a more subjective emphasis on reason, but he's not all the way there. You start getting all the way there, I think, with, um, you know, things like pragmatism in the early 20th century or late 19th century, or it just empiricism, uh, these sort of common sense philosophies that are, I would argue, very predominant in our society today. Right. And uh, I think that one of the points that I actually don't remember whether or not it was Horkheimer or Marcuse, maybe it was both of them, uh, the idea of removing metaphysics from the field of reason helped like draw a sharp distinction it helped make reason into subjective reason, mm. which helped confine it to the world of science only and uh, only observable things and not things which might be that we can't fully understand, if, if I'm understanding that correctly. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, in terms of like the natural sciences, right, like the scientific method that I'm, I'm sure many of us, at least speaking for myself, learned growing up in grade school yeah, and yeah. whatnot, uh, it's all rooted on empiricism ultimately which is exactly well and good i mean it's not to say that that's fundamentally wrong but the idea that i think has become again quite predominant in our society today and i think what horkheimer and marcuse are sort of nicely trying to show is that this is not just a coincidence that this has become predominant but has a lot to do with capitalism itself frankly and the ideologies that it uh ends up supporting but uh, Really, this idea has spread such that people tend to think that empiricism is the only way we have access to knowledge about how the world actually works. That it's only by empirical observation that we can understand how things work. The issue with that, unfortunately, for, you know, hardline empiricists is that they can't account for the rational, logical principles I mean, just like the principles of deduction, for example, that they themselves are employing in their arguments about what's going on out there uh, that are not themselves subject to empirical validation. So like, you know, for for instance, if, I mean, the most basic law and formal logic, modus ponens, is simply uh, states, uh, if S, then P. S, and then conclusion, therefore P, right? Which is a basic law of deduction. It's basic syllogism. Well, you can't prove that that syllogism 
it is necessarily valid through empirical observation, right? Like, there's no study you can do in a lab and say, oh, see, if we have these elements, I can observe that P follows, we have an S, okay. That's not how it works, right? Uh, it's, as Kant would put it, an a priori truth. It's a truth that doesn't require experiential validation and can't be proven by way of experiential validation or empirical validation. And so uh, the predominance of empiricism in our society uh, ends up pushing, like sweeping under the rug, maybe let's say, uh, these more, these richer or fuller concepts of reason that ultimately are still operative under the surface. That's interesting that um, we are currently doing a reading group on uh or like a, a collaboration reading series on a book called the enchantments of mammon um which is about it basically the author takes this uh, max weber's thesis about the protestant role in disenchanting the world and uh he takes it even further and says that it's actually not a real a, really a disenchantment but a misenchantment which sort of and then he uses like a lot of very marxist concepts about uh fetishism to talk about how uh the logic of capitalism is its own sort of mysticism hmm. and its own sort of like re-enchantment of the world and he calls that like pecuniary reason and uh hmm. calls like capitalism is the re- religion of mammon essentially right and so these earlier uh, romantic anti-capitalists like uh john milton and hmm. uh, john ruskin and even like conservative anti-capitalists like Thomas Carlyle all have this idea of reason that's torn from the fabric of nature. And they, they say that that is the, the enemy of humanity, that, that reason torn from the fabric of nature is the enemy of humanity. Not reason itself, hmm. but this really sort of like reason that has been become mercenary for hmm. just re- reinforcing the uh, a priori truths of capitalism, you know? Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think one of the main uh, theses that both Marcuse and Horkheimer are working with here in these texts, too, uh, is the idea that uh, along these lines, reason has been sort of devalued from this sort of comprehensive uh, foundation for how the world actually is to a mere tool again. And when I say tool, uh, I mean that in you know, a sort of like capitalistic sense as a sort of means to an end in a sort of instrumental way. This is why they'll both talk about this as instrumental rationality or technological rationality. Yeah. And the idea here is that, you know, reason going back to these, again, uh, sort of great older metaphysical thinkers like Plato and Aristotle has to do with questions about what ends in themselves actually are. You know, one of the most perennial questions of philosophy is what is a good life and what is objectively right. good, right? Well, in the modern capitalistic era, we don't ask those questions anymore because it's a more relativistic world that we're living in. And so the question, what is objectively a good life, becomes a sort of affront to the idea that we can provide an answer to it because people, you know, are operating on the basis of understanding that, you know, that's up to individuals to decide for themselves. There's no objectively right answer about what's true or right and good. And so we don't question what the ends are that we are sort of 
adapting our behavior to in this society. Reason just becomes a way of sort of more efficiently meeting the pre-given ends, which, as again, both these thinkers point out, are primarily provided to us by the economic system itself. So the ends ultimately of, you know, profit accumulation for the bourgeoisie, and as Marx would put it, uh, ends up being the unquestioned end that we, without this more objective, robust concept of reason, don't have the capacity to fully question. And so reason then is just a way of adapting ourselves to, again, the sort of pre-given logic of the capitalist epoch or world that we're inhabiting. That's super interesting because it mirrors the development of Calvinist theology hmm. at the exact same time uh, in the in the Enlightenment, the early capitalist period, where you have the 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 work ethic of Puritanism is uh, very much so uh, encapsulated in their theology. The idea that you need to improve the land hmm. and and uh, uh, you should accumulate wealth as your duty to God, and then at the same time the it's developing further and further away from any idea of a sort of like sacramental religion in, into a personal religion. Hmm. So becomes between you and God as to whether or not you're living a moral and just and upright and godlike, uh, Christ-like life. So it mirror it mirror essentially it mirrors what we're talking about here, where uh, the the divorce of religion and theology and metaphysics in general from uh, any contemplation, reasonable contempla uh, contemplation becomes, it turns religion into that same sort of, it turns yeah. it into that sort of same inward looking, morally relativistic kind of thing that we're talking about. So it's interesting to see like um, how both philosophy and religion are developing in the same way. Of course, it's, it's not that, you know, it's not a novel idea, but they're developing because that's what needs to happen for capitalism to develop in the fashion that it ha that it does. So you could definitely see the ideas of the ruling class um, are the ideas that are needed to perpetuate the system as it's unfolding. Absolutely. So the, the, the base is feeding into the superstructure, which is in turn feeding back into the base. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting that you talk about this progression from, you know, older sort of uh, Catholic theology to Lutheran theology and Calvinism and all that stuff, uh, yeah. because Hegel himself in the Phenomenology of Spirit traces this exact same progression, basically in the terms that you're talking about, where we go right. from God is like the cosmos or the community that we're a part of or whatever, to this more interpersonal uh, subjective relationship to God. We no longer need, uh, in, with Luther, right, a priest to mediate my relationship with God. I don't need to go to the confessional to have access to God as a priest, you know, mediates in between me and him or whatever. Uh, instead, I can pray on my own uh, and I have sort of individual access to God. Well, as you're, you know, rightly pointing out, this is not just a sort of uh, turn towards the individual and introspection that's happening only in religion. It's very obviously happening in philosophy. I mean, f you know, in terms of the study of the history of philosophy, uh, most scholars, I guess myself included, like to mark the beginning of philosophical modernity with Descartes' thinking. Mm -hmm. And of course, right. you know, the most important principle of Descartes' thinking is the cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. 
Now, what makes this such a novel idea is that he is basically trying to create a foundation for philosophy that rests on the individual, the I, right? And this is a right. very different move from what these other thinkers in, you know, the medieval era or the ancient era are doing philosophically. And from a historical materialist perspective, we might also notice that this turn towards individuals as such is also occurring precisely in an era where individuals are no longer basically being told by their communities what they need to do. Serfs are, you know, as feudalism withers away over time, are being liberated from their land and are being proletarianized and becoming wage laborers. Well, the whole structure liberated. of... Liberated. Yeah, liberated, of course. Liberated. Oh, speaking yeah, only for Liberated both from yeah. being bonded to the land, but also from the land itself. Just go yes, away. It, precisely, yeah. precisely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, this is creating a situation where individuals are, quote-unquote, free now on a contractual basis to figure out their work situations for themselves. The community is no longer doing that for you. You're not being told, hey, you're a serf, do this. Now you're being told, again, quote unquote, of course, you have the freedom to pursue whatever profession you want, you know, wink, wink, obviously. And if you don't figure it out in due time, you're going to starve, by the way, is obviously what's going on underneath the surface there. But uh, the development of wage labor as capitalism gains steam and develops, uh, I, I would argue, has quite a bit to do with these developments in religious thinking and in philosophical thinking that are sort of mirroring these same developments. Um, something that uh, jumps out to me, um, as, uh, less of a student of history and more of a student of philosophy is, um, especially Marcuse's, uh, discussion of instrumental reason as contrasted with, um, objective reason. I, it is what strikes me as a parallel or maybe uh, a discussion that's informed by Heidegger and Heidegger's concern uh, about technology more broadly. Um, hmm. I, it, I, I, it, I can't help but wonder if Heidegger is touching into something that is uh, maybe underlying um, a, a criticism of the, you know, capitalism as the, uh, the ruling, uh, producing the ruling ideas uh, of society in a in, in a given period, uh, versus the ideas that are being produced by a material reality that we find ourselves in, that capitalism maybe um, accentuates or taps into or makes use of, but it's pre-existing. It's there. I, I wonder if Heidegger is identifying something. Uh, underlying, maybe underneath capitalism, that is uh, the instrument that is what he identifies as technology, the instrumentalization of the world as being a barrier to authentic what what he conceives of as uh, authentic being, sure. or uh, or that is uh, what Marcuse is discussing here is is what he's doing is 
taking high, a per, I, 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 I want to say maybe this is the other hand is maybe Marcuse is uh, correcting Heidegger's um, incorrect focus, right? That that maybe Heidegger is taking too much of a metaphysical focus, and and instead he, uh, Marcuse is sort of narrowing it in and saying. Uh, what you are calling the problem of technology is really the problem of capitalism. Yeah, I mean, so that's a really interesting sort of can of worms to look at here. I mean, because of course, first and foremost, it should be mentioned that Marcuse was a student of Heidegger's, right? Um, and, you know, he wrote his doctorate uh, with Heidegger for a period of time and corresponded with Heidegger and even wrote a series of, you know, very angry sort of critical letters, of obviously, after World War II, Heidegger's Nazism was on full display to the world, all that nasty stuff. Um, so you're right to, I think, point out that there is uh, some lineage here that's quite similar. And I think Heidegger and Marcuse are both uh, deeply critical of the ways in which technology has sort of overdetermined human life in our societies today. The difference, however, and I think this is really important to emphasize here, is that Heidegger is coming from a sort of neo-romantic viewpoint, which is to say a reactionary viewpoint. He, like, you know, his romantic precursors, who were not all reactionary, to be was, clear, but I was going to say, yeah, like, you, there's them's fighting words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, you know, he's, he's taking a lot from, uh, Schelling in particular amongst the German idealists. And Schelling, you know, and Hegel were BFFs for a minute. Uh, they were roommates even for a moment in time, interestingly, I just learned. Uh, but then they became sort of bitter ideological enemies. And what Schelling, what Heidegger, I think, are calling for is not a thorough, rational critique of capitalism and this society that, you know, produces technological rationality and all of the falsity that comes with that. Instead, they're calling for some irrationalist, sort of romantic, more poetic vision of what life ought to be like. And Heidegger is notoriously unclear about exactly what this is and what the basis for it is. Now, I mean, ultimately for him, I guess the basis is phenomenology, this sort of uh, account of our lived experiences as lived and all this. But Heidegger is deeply, deeply opposed to a sort of return to a metaphysical foundation and a rationalist foundation in particular. Uh, Heidegger was deeply critical of Hegel and certainly uh, would not consider himself as part of that tradition and would think of himself as fact as an enemy of that tradition. Marcuse, on the other hand, in spite of the obvious influence of Heidegger on his thinking in certain you know important ways, remains, I would argue, a sort of Hegelian Marxist. And consequently, you know, Heidegger, I mean, being a Nazi, of course, is not comfortable with critiquing capitalism as the root foundational issue with why these ideas have popped up. Uh, Marcuse, on the other hand, is precisely emphasizing that. And he's precisely also emphasizing the fact that what happens in what he calls one-dimensional society is that uh, reason is basically, how do I say, uh, prevented from 
sort of functioning as it ought to, where the prevailing ideologies of the status quo have become so widespread and so powerful, in a sense, that people are sort of unable to recognize the basic contradictions of this society as contradictions. So, you know, he talks about in a later chapter of the text that we didn't look at here, uh, like the Orwellian sort of use of language, like war is peace, right? And he says, you know, in capitalist society, this sort of idea is just part and parcel of everyday life in a lot of ways. You know, on the one hand, we constantly talk about the United States as the bastion of freedom and democracy and as seeking, you know, a peaceful world. But on the other hand, it doesn't strike many people as a profound contradiction that we are the, as Martin Luther King so rightly put it, greatest purveyor of violence on the in the world today, right? Um, and so yeah. Marcuse wants to sort of return, I think, to a more rational foundation, whereas Heidegger saw the attempt to turn to reason as itself part of inauthenticity, as a matter of fact. Well, I, I see those as varying degrees of romanticism. There's lots of romanticism in... Uh in uh Marcuse and um Horkheimer and that I that I recognize in the early anti-capitalist romantics it's like the same the same sort of criticism of of reason specifically mm. or of this uh instrumental reason I mean uh that that they they didn't have that word for it back then they just called it like reason divorced from nature or whatever uh, but I see that there is a bit of that romanticism in there. And even the idea that we could go back to a better kind of reason is a hmm. bit of a romantic idea. There's there's a, a, a dulling of the edge of the Promethean in in this, this era of the Frankfurt School. Hmm. And like a shift towards pessimism and a turn and a look back towards a sort of a romantic idea. I mean, it's, it's not full romanticism, obviously, like. But there is a tinge of romanticism that I'm that I'm detecting. Yeah, and, oh, and 100%, I guess yeah. the difference is yeah. that Hegel acts as the shield against the retrograde romanticism. Right there, we go. It's it's a romanticism filtered backwards yeah. through Hegel. <laughs> yeah, and of course yeah. Hegel himself was also obviously deeply influenced by romanticism himself, and even has oh, yeah. elements of that. And it's he's not just like a cold, you know calculative rationalist or something no like the this. uh the, i mean the he, world spirit and the Volk, the volksgeist and the zeitgeist are not exactly like hard rational concepts yeah yeah sure um uh, and obviously he was just biographically uh you know in jena uh, he was around goethe and schiller and schelling of course as i already mentioned and you know was conversant with the developments of German romanticism and wasn't just completely dismissive. Right. So certainly right. there's an element of that within uh, Hegel's thinking and also within, you know, Marcuse and Horkheimer's thinking as well, needless to say. Not to mention Marx and Engels. I th what, who was it that, uh, was it Engels that said that he learned more about capitalism from reading Carlyle than he did from talking to any of the great economists of his day? Oh, I think, I think you're right. I think it was Engels. But I mean, like all of all of Marx and Engels, like the the conditions of the working class in England, and uh, even Volume One of Capital, the the way that Marx talks about the transition to capitalism is painted in very very romantic terms. Hmm. Of course, Marx takes that the that romantic vision of the past and basically says, "Well, see, because because I know that this is what th there were things in." 
the distant past that we were capable of. That's how I know that we're capable of doing them in the future after we have liberated ourselves. Right, from, like on a, you know, on, on a higher basis. Right. Like on the like on the higher technological basis bequeathed to us by this anti anti romantic uh no, that's the wrong word. But you know, whatever, the Promethean dominance. Anti human, yeah. Yeah. The anti human essence of capitalism gives us the basis to actually achieve the goals of the romantics by going beyond it. His Prometheanism yeah. is romantic. That's, that's what I was trying to say. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for Mark, if we're talking especially about uh, what is often, you know, regarded as one of the defining, I guess, I mean, romanticism is notoriously difficult to define because it covers such a wide variety of thinkers and uh, artists. Right. But uh, I think one all of All over the, the spectrum. Yeah, all definitely all over the political spectrum, all over the ideological spectrum, all of that. But, uh, yeah. you know, one of the sort of themes I, I think that is common to at least a lot of them, if not all of them, is this sort of desire to uh, reconcile ourselves once more with nature. And this right. is yeah. very clearly a profound element in all of Marx's thinking. Um, uh-huh. You know, for him, uh, what makes capitalism a very, well, one of the things I should say that makes capitalism such a unique epoch in human history is that for the first time, he says this in the Grundrisse, uh, nature is regarded solely as an object of utility. It's no longer regarded as a sort of living world or even more so as deities that control our lives as it was in, you know, animistic cultures in the ancient world and things like this, or even some that's, I mean, obviously still even exist today, uh, but is instead just regarded as sort of dead material that we can profitably, of course, you know, take up and turn into commodities and make a bunch of money off of, et cetera, et cetera. And he, in a very nice passage in the Grundrisse that I quite love, uh, talks about how in socialism or communism, we would return to nature in a way and we would once more, he says, recognize nature as our real living bodies again and would no longer regard it as just dead, inanimate material anymore, but would sort of achieve the romantic sort of goal of reconciling ourselves again with the natural right. world that's the um like the oh, difference that. <laughs> that's the difference between the um kind of like bourgeois scientific notion of all of nature as like a machine with like parts that all hmm. work together in some sort of harmonious um yeah the cartesian yeah. uh dualism of, of like the 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 thing that really matters the neoplatonism the thing that really matters is the this the spirit uh, realm that we're connected to through this gland in our brain uh, as opposed to the stuff that doesn't really matter this dead inert uh, mechanistic world that were that the spirit uh, is sort of implanted inside of that God uh, dictates the uh, cohesiveness of you know that like that's the Cartesian uh, dualism that um, renders one um, if not bad, then at least um, um, disregarding, uh, and then the other good and worth pursuing. The imperfect creation of the demiurge, as opposed to the perfect creation of yeah, the true god. In right. The well, and yeah. like, like you know, you can you can contrast that you know total machine with perfect you know internal laws that all you know everything serves a small part of a greater function. On the one hand, to you know, let's call it the more Hegelian way of understanding 
all of existence as a series of interconnected processes, which is much more complicated than a mm. machine. So for the bourgeois, for for the bourgeois positivist, it's that, you know, it's like a, like a steam engine, and for mm. for Hegelian, it's more like a computer. Yeah, or I would even go so far as to say it's more like a living. Yeah, organism, that's a much better. I mean, sense. like yeah, it's it's like a living organism right. where like your heart works because your brain works, and they both. You know, they both have no independent existence, but they have their own independent internal rules. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's, it's it's very animistic conception of like reality, and it sort of, uh, I think, is a throwback to uh, a pre-modern understanding of of nature, like. That's that's the way that the Romans and the Greeks thought of nature as well, you know. Of course, they they thought of it as being animated by spirits, like uh, everything animated by a spirit. Like uh, they even had like a spiritual conception of of physics. So like if you if if like I threw my cell phone across the room, there would be a spirit that picked it up as it left my hand and carried it across the room, called an indigitamenta, and that was like what caused things to move. Right, which we now understand as gravity. It's like a despiritualized yeah. animism. Hmm. Well, right. Which, it's like, which, if you really interrogate the concept of gravity, like, how is that any different than what we used to call spirits? <laughs> right. I mean, there's there's a reason why, uh, you know, there there's a certain kind of thinking that draws a direct linkage between like modern physics and then like you know shamanistic interpretations of the natural world, and that there are like sidesteps that are called like monotheism or like Newtonian physics. That these are like different ways of understanding, like well, that's what how these things happen or how everything happens. That's the point that Mulder makes, like every episode of the X Files. You know, hey, that's pretty good. There's two X Files references in a half hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's yeah. keep them up. Keep them up. <laughs> keep going with the X Files references. You know, uh, also going back again to uh, Aristotle, who obviously is. I mean, that's kind of my wheelhouse in a lot of ways. You, you like to do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you know, for him, uh, this. Uh, when we talk about Aristotle's teleology, right? Uh, teleology is just the term that means the science of ends. So for Aristotle, yes. famously, what a thing is, is defined by the active end that it is pursuing. Whatever the process is developing towards is how we can understand what it is. Now for him, this is how nature works. This is just part of the natural world. But you'll notice that in, and this was widely accepted, you know, uh, as an idea in various ways, shapes, and forms that are quite complex. But, you know, throughout the pre-capitalist world, this was at least a popular way of understanding the world of nature. And Aristotle is not attributing it to even gods or deities. He's just saying, no, this is actually the rational way of what to understand what's going on here in the natural world. Well, when you get to uh, the sort of Newtonian age and capitalism and all this, again, you get this sort of, as you, uh, I think, rightly put it, despiritualization of nature, where it's just uh, cold cause and effect. It's just cold mechanism. And so it's not that nature is this sort of animate, living sort of thing that is developing towards specific ends, depending on what organism we're looking at or what ecosystem or whatever, but it's instead just cause and effect, cause and effect, and there's no ultimate end directing any of it. And this is, I think, what Horkheimer is really trying to point out, is that the idea of ends has just been sort of evacuated from how we think about 
ourselves, how we think about nature. Uh, in fact, you know, this is in a later chapter, but he has a, in chapter three of Eclipse of Reason, uh, that th- is called just the revolt of nature. And there's a, just a nice, maybe little quote here, uh, that I think is just really relevant that I just found where he says, uh, nevertheless, nature is today more than ever conceived as a mere tool of man. It is the object of total exploitation that has no aim set by reason and therefore no limit. And this idea right, yeah, that yeah. nature has limits and has ends that are inherent to it is, again, this older Aristotelian teleological view. It's the Hegelian view as well, and I would go so far as to argue it's also the Marxian view, as a matter of fact, too, uh, without, obviously, the spiritual you know, deities and all that stuff. Uh, uh-huh. But with capitalism, again, it's just, no, no, there is no sort of ends that nature has internally uh, amongst itself or within itself, I should say. Uh, and consequently, we can just do whatever we want with it and, you know, the consequences be damned. Which this explains to me, I think, why there had had to be the re-injection of that idea that nature has processes and ends hmm. uh, into science by environmental sciences, hmm. right? Like, and then envi- it explains also, and I never understood this, why in the, the field of environmental philosophy exists because we have artificially separated nature from philosophy. Well, we've artificially uh, separated history from philosophy and we've artificially separated science from philosophy. We've artificially separated history yeah, from exactly. science and from ec- economics from yeah. history. And Yeah, fuck, fuck STEM. All my friends hate STEM. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, I'm just not smart enough to do math. Well, so like, like what's in. the what's the term that um, we we spent some time discussing it uh, when we were reading Dialectic of Defeat? There's Hegel's notion of science impregnated by history, or something like that. It's uh, oh yeah, the, the, well whatever. The German word is very cool, right? <laughs> but it's like it's a, an ex, an explicitly distinct way of understanding, you know, the laws of nature from the positivist school of which which doesn't see any relationship between the unfolding of historical processes and and the mm-hmm. natural world and the way that human beings relate to it uh so there there is a conscious rupture that it's i think it's only like hard for us to figure out now because there's been such a such a drift inside of uh inside of marxism from its hegelian roots so that people tend to think of like hmm. Marx's thinking as a continuation of and development of, you know, enlightenment scientific thinking, as opposed to like, hmm. I mean, it is a development of, but not in a linear way, right? In a dialectical way, in that it's a, it's an hmm. advance over, and in a resuscitation of pre-enlightenment thinking through the process of enlightenment thinking. Hello, just wanted to remind everyone of a few things. First of all, we have a Patreon. If you like us enough to give us $2 a month, you can join our Patreon and receive access to our irregularly posted content. We only have one tier, and that tier provides access to our Discord server, which includes discussion about all sorts of stuff which may or may not be relevant to the podcast. We're also going to be doing reading groups and patron roundtables, which will be group discussions on topics decided in the Discord and recorded as special patron-only episodes. In addition to that, we've got our regular patron-only episodes that are posted whenever we come up with a topic or find an article 
that we think is super interesting and actually have time to talk about it. We have all kinds of ideas for other content and are always looking for more. If any of that interests you, become a patron and join in. I would also like to remind everyone that we are part of the Lost Horizons Network, which is a dialectical pessimist podcasting network, which includes Red Library, From 78, The Regrettable Century, and our Supergroup podcast. Well, here we are still, after all, which includes members of all three podcasts. Make sure to follow all of our respective podcasts on Twitter and to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcatching app. For real, go to iTunes right now, give us a five-star rating, and leave us a review about how much you like us. Let's trick the algorithm into showing our content to more people. Okay, back to the show. Okay, so that kind of brings us around to um, instrumental reason. Like we've been talking about instrumental reason this whole time without actually naming it instrumental reason. Um, But so I guess what Horkheimer and Marcuse are getting at is that the the objective reason that we mentioned before moves through what is called objective reason where the the ends are not so important anymore and the means become all consuming and into an instrumental reason which is just becomes the justification for capitalism uh, as a as a world system right and within science within philosophy so what specifically is if you had to define instrumental reason what would that what would that be yeah i mean i i do think it is sort of captured by the idea that reason is simply a faculty of human subjects so it's not out there in the world it's just a faculty that we have that is about coordinating our actions as means to ends that we can't inherently question themselves, right? Uh, and okay, so, yeah. like, another way of putting that is to say that, you know, within, like, capitalism as a system, instrumental reason is about uh, what we rationally need to do as parts of the whole to, you know, meet certain objectives that the whole itself is setting for us. Like, you know, most obviously, making money, uh, finding profitable forms of employment, you know, to survive if we're capitalists, finding the best ways to exploit more labor and resources to amass more money, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what's missing from this sort of narrow version of reason is precisely the ability to critique the whole as such. So I think right. this is what Marcuse means when he talks about one-dimensional thinking, where Maybe we can think rationally and critically about things within the system, but the system itself is sort of tabooed as something that we can critique as a whole. And so it's just sort of dogmatically uh, assumed by a lot of people at the very least that, oh no, the way the world works, the way the economy works, this is just rational. There's no questioning that. This is just like yeah, natural, right? right? Um, and so we can't question alternative, you know, like Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative uh, ways of organizing our societies and economies. Instead, we just got to figure out how to maybe ameliorate the worst consequences of capitalism, like in a reformist sort of way, or uh, just need to coordinate our actions on the basis of just how things are. Right. So I listened to a, a lecture um, by uh, Rick Roderick hmm. talking about uh, Marcuse. 
Sure. And he used a pretty good, pretty good example of how of one of the failures of instrumental reason. He says that if uh, if you're trying to start a union, uh, let's say you go to the first three people, it is individually unreasonable for them to join a union. Hmm. Like, why would they do it? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, there's a if if only if those if only those three people ever joined the union, then it wouldn't it wouldn't do anything. It, it wouldn't be useful to them at all as individuals. You would actually have to defy, transcend, individualized instrumental reason in order for there to be like any kind of reasonable gain to be made by by unionizing. Mm-hmm. And once you start considering the union as a whole and organizing your entire workplace, then you're like, okay, well that's you know, this 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 makes sense now. Yeah, okay, I, I have to transcend my individual reason. And th- think of things more holistically in order for it to make any sense. Hmm. And that is a, apparently a very hard thing for well, people to do. Well, and you could just, you could, in a somewhat uh, overly simplistic way, you could say that the only way to arrive at the reasonable conclusion is to make a leap of faith, right? <laughs> Away from your personal <laughs> exactly. individual yeah. experience and what is most reasonable for you into a, an, an imagined conception of the collective whole. In order to arrive at at the much more reasonable calculation, um, I I say it all the time that Marxism takes faith, a, a lot of faith. Yeah, I I would maybe push on that a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I I knew I know, yeah I knew Chris was going to push back on that. <laughs> yeah, um, because I mean I think that really this older again, richer concept of reason actually is what allows you to make those connections without simply having to rely on faith. Like you actually can through the power of rational thinking, if it is being sort of properly, if we want to be a little more technical, dialectically being utilized and employed, uh, make those connections to ideas about the whole as such, or about, you know, the questions about the ends that are governing how the system works and things like this. Um, you know, for Marx and like Hegel, uh, you know, faith was sort of the thing. I mean, this is sort of a perennial philosophical point, I guess I should say, for a lot of thinkers in this sort of rationalist tradition. Uh, faith is sort of what we want to overcome. We don't want to just have to ever believe things just because we want to believe them. We want to believe things only because we actually can rationally account for them and can actually think for ourselves about what is, you know, right, true, good, and all that nice stuff. Um, but I do think that what sort of Marxism does, if it's, you know, consistent with at least what Marx himself was up to, is that it does provide a thoroughly rational framework by which we can, once again, concretely understand the system we are a part of in critical terms and understand, hey, this is not just how things are, for God's sakes. This has only been how things have been for a few hundred years, for that matter. And this, therefore, is not simply how things need to be either. And so then it becomes an obvious question. Well, if this is not just how things are, how things, how should things be? And the point, I think, that... uh Marcuse and Horkheimer are alluding to in many ways in these texts is that we actually, through the use of speculative reason, to use another bit of a technical Hegelian term, can come to some conclusions about how things 
ought to be on the basis of these sort of older metaphysical principles about justice and freedom and humanity and all this stuff. Yeah, we're okay. I'll, I'll accept that. I'll accept that uh, pushback. <laughs> um, <laughs> I so in in reasoning the the better world that we think is possible and breaking with this sort of like, I guess I don't know, uh, false reason, hmm. uh, pseudo reason maybe is what it seems like it is, right? It's it's a it's a reason that doesn't if it if it's not fully taking into consideration all that is hmm. then it is uh I think entirely unreasonable it seems like false reason to me there comes a point when in in organizing and in um uh you know in, in revolutions where we have to take all that we have reasoned and then take a leap of faith from there that we have been correct. That's really all that I mean by it requires faith. Hmm. Because I think that because we we can't empirically prove everything that we believe because we can't, we don't have, we can't, we can't use the scientific method on our, our ideas about sociology, yeah. right? Hmm. In many cases and, and what we think that the future will be like. It's inevitably going to require some faith in our own ability to reason. That's all I really mean by that. You know, not, not, so, yeah. There's a whole, school of anti-communism which considers itself rooted in marxism that you know that argues that p- people like lenin and the bolsheviks uh made an unscientific error in having a revolution in a country which had not yet achieved uh a productive capacity necessary for like the higher organization of society so that they like abandoned the scientific part of scientific socialism in order to like you know, there's you know people like Sidney Lenz think of Lenin as like a romantic anti-capitalist, but not a real Marxist because of his unscientific revolution in a backward country. Um, like Lenin just made the fucking well, revolution right? By or himself. even if like a uh, you know if a hundred and ten thousand party members can make a revolution by itself, or even a million or two or like seven million workers can make a revolution by themselves. Like there is a there's a certain it's like a like a Napoleonic maxim that like you know you you make all of your battle plans and you assess the train and you consult the best maps and you send out scouts and whatever and you commit to the battle and then you figure out how to actually fight it. And it basically amounts to hoping you had it right and being prepared to like shift and twist and turn in ways which are much less logical and much more intuitive, even if it's all rooted in a logical, uh, you know, full appraisal of all of the objective factors in the final analysis, it's audacity and like courage and determination and like intangible things that win battles. Uh, and I, and, you know, and the same thing, you know, you could say about something like revolutions, which are just series of battles. Uh, so in that sense, yeah, there's a, there's a bit of over rationalism that can be, I think, yeah, I, I, you know, anti-communist or it, it can be utilized in an anti-communist way, I think. Sure. I, I would go so far as to argue, of course, though, that anyone who thinks that they're adhering to reason and making critiques like that are not actually uh, adhering to the rational right. standards they're that they claim making to be, a mistake right? of reason. Yeah. Uh, it is also possible to just be wrong. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Like You could say I'm being rational, but not 
actually, just because you say it doesn't mean that you are, right? Even if you think you're being rigorous and whatnot. And when it comes to, you know, actions like this, I mean, there's a great uh, little section in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics where he talks about this very topic where, you know, Aristotle's obviously, as I've I think alluded to, right, a sort of thoroughgoing rationalist of sorts. But that doesn't mean for him that we can, you know, sort of deductively somehow predict the future and base our actions on that prediction accordingly or something like this. Instead, he says, you know, look, for things like ethical behavior, we, because of this precise circumstances are going to be different for every single individual and in every single case. We cannot formulate, unlike Immanuel Kant, by the way, or like the Ten Commandments, these immutable laws that will hold good in every single case. He says, instead, we have to think on the terrain of the given circumstances and find the virtuous course of action in the particulars. And there's no Again, just sort of laws like never lie or something that you can just apply abstractly to every single situation. Because sometimes the, the ethical thing to do is to lie. You know, the Nazis show up at your door and you're hiding your, you know, Jewish neighbors. You should lie to them. Right. right? Or, like, should, I hope go or if the police saying. ask you any question ever, always lie to them. <laughs> exactly. Because you have a moral obligation <laughs> to confuse and confound the efforts of the police under all circumstances. <laughs> right. So, you know, uh, just because we are, you know, making actions in uh, historical circumstances that we don't know the outcome of, uh, doesn't mean that, you know, and I, and I think, I don't think anyone was saying that this was the case, but it doesn't mean that reason is not still fundamentally a part of how we're strategizing or how we're deciding upon what to do even though there's no guarantees that what we do is in fact rational or is in fact even right. going to work. I mean, you could actually, you could make the case that people like Karl Kautsky or people like Sidney Lenz are actually, they're victims of a bourgeois notion of the world as a, like a coherent machine with a bunch of small interrelating parts, as opposed to, hmm. you know, Lenin's thinking being more a series of processes and the process of revolution in a backward country and how it relates to the process of revolution in an advanced country the way that they complement each other. You could make the case that it's actually deeply reasonable, you know, and, and incredibly scientific, yeah. very rational in the way it, of the understanding of the influence of different processes. I mean, absolutely. I, I would say, you know, from like a Hegelian perspective, and Lenin, of course, was very conversant with Hegel. I mean, for God's sakes, when he was in exile in Switzerland, uh, he took it upon himself to make a detailed study of Hegel's science of logic. And he wasn't doing it just for fun because he needed something to do. He thought that this was deeply important, actually, for, you know, the kinds of politics he was trying to advocate for. Well, with this sort of capital S notion of science, let's call it from Hegel's perspective, uh, contradictions, as opposed to what formal logic yeah. would tell you, are not simply a grounds for dismissing something. Rather, the sort of curious insight of Hegel is, and Marx, of course, adopts this too, is that uh, contradiction actually refers to what things actually are. So, you know, the contradictions of capitalism doesn't don't mean that capitalism doesn't exist. It just means that the system has contradictions that drive how it develops and functions, right? 
Yeah, I mean, so, like, when Lenin is trying to figure out, right, like, with the Bolsheviks more broadly, you know, what are we to do? We're not as developed as the West. We haven't gone through a bourgeois period. We aren't as industrialized. Should we put off the ability to have a socialist revolution and have a bourgeois one first, or should we just go for it? Well, he's thinking, obviously, not just about Russia, but he's thinking about the global situation. And, of course, you know, as Trotsky had it, and I frankly think this is somewhat right, uh, the the success of the revolution in Russia depended upon whether it actually spread to the industrialized West. And I think that was the hope. And the Bolsheviks, I think, did the right thing by seizing the opportunity when they had it to actually carry through a successful socialist revolution. Yeah. We're all post-trots of some stripe, so I think we'd all agree yeah, with that. Yeah, I think sure. what, you know, we've, we've all arrived at a point of being able to appreciate and dispassionately assess that whole experience in the same way that you can with the French Revolution, because it's so far back. So you don't have to be a Leninist sure. to, like to get something from Lenin's contributions to Marxism. It's just, it's just another person who had some thoughts and a lot of them were good, you know, and some of them aren't whatever. Um, But, you know, when you were talking about, uh, I I was reminded earlier when I, when I interrupted you and then stopped (laughs) Uh, when I was, when you read through capital and you see how often uh, Marx refers to like the process of like transmogrification and transubstantiation and constant references to the contradiction between this and that. Um, to me, it's actually like mm. definitive proof that Althusser's notion of an ep- epistemological break is basically unfounded. Because Marx, mm. you know, he uses different terms and he's not talking in such glowing and like, like flowery, poetic, romantic language, but he's still talking about the exact same, he's still applying the same way of understanding the world when he's, you know, mm. assessing formula and revisiting political economy over the previous century he's still describing all of it in terms of you know contradiction and rupture and recomposition yeah and i mean to that i would also add and i fully agree i i I like althusser quite a bit but i think his reading of uh marx is in many ways wrong especially his uh emphasis on the difference between the mature political economist Marx and the early philosophical Marx. I just think if you actually look deeply at texts like the Grundrisse, it's crystal clear that Marx never drops the philosophical dimension yeah. to his thinking. And in fact, you know, yeah, he just got, he got worse at writing. <laughs> he just got a little more boring. Yeah. <laughs> Although, yeah. you know, there's uh, plenty I mean, of beautiful passages in capital. You just, it's, you got to get oh, through yeah. some serious well, slogs. It's just it's yeah. economics, man. You know how how flowery can you it's, write about economics? Well, and also I would also just add that uh, in the Grundrisse, which is you know kind of a mess of a text to read in many ways because it was po- only posthumously published. These were notebooks he was writing in the late 1850s in preparation for the publication of Capital, but uh, because he's writing for himself, he doesn't shy away from citing Hegel a lot in that text. And he doesn't shy away from much more sort of philosophical, romantic formulations of the problems there, which is why it's such a rich, I would highly recommend uh, people take a look at that text, actually, as a matter of fact. It's dense and difficult in many ways, but some of the passages are some of the most, I would argue, insightful and striking in all of Marx's works. But even in Capital itself, you know, for instance, right, uh, there's a nice little quote that, that I just conveniently have happen to have in front of I carry me. Carry it with me at all times. He says, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my little red book. <laughs> um, uh, he says that in their appearance, things are often presented in an inverted way from their essence is something familiar to every science apart from political economy. So in Capital itself, he's pointing out, well, first of all, he's using these metaphysical categories of essence and appearance, and he's saying, look, when thi- how things appear to be the case is often an inversion or is contradictory vis-a-vis how they actually essentially are. And his use of this language is not just coincidental, this is implying that he's operating with a philosophical concept of essence yeah. still. Not, you know, I mean, we can interrogate what that is, and I think that that's an extremely interesting and difficult question. But it just means that, at the very least, he's still using this, these ideas. And to the broader sort of topic of this conversation, I would just make the claim that his ability to do that presupposes some notion of reason here that is operative because it's by way of reason that we can think in terms of a concept like essence right uh and this is again something that has been part and parcel of uh the philosophical tradition going all the way back to plato's idea of the forms here and obviously what marx means by essence is a bit different from that but there's a lineage there and i think it's important to emphasize that it's not incidental but is actually foundational for marx's project as a matter of fact so that's that's exactly the point that i that i want to try to quibble with and and you know i yeah okay so uh i i don't want to sort of try to try to act like uh, i've got uh everything sort of figured out correctly or whatever i'm uh open to being corrected here and i and i want to sort of like increase my knowledge and not sort of shut down conversation right so that's my uh, intent in sort of uh, maybe wanting to quibble or disagree, right? Uh, but that's that's what I want to say is not that like so where I see what it seems to me uh, your conclusion that uh, reason is foundational is uh, the point that I want to draw uh, try to put in a um, I want to open that gap and say that it's not foundational, but um it uh reason shows up it exists it's shot through everything um that we as humans do uh and how we operate in our world but that doesn't make it necessarily foundational that makes it um an element and makes it elemental uh, but not the only thing that exists as an element in in human existence. The only aspect uh, of human existence. There's I I kind of uh, so there's to to call back something a, a little bit earlier in the conversation about how um uh you, I, I think Chris you were saying about how. Uh, we, we don't have to know with absolute, absolute certainty that something, uh, you know, is going to be the case in the future in order to act on it rationally. I, we, we, we still have a sort of rational approach to, uh, these things have existed before. Therefore, I'm going to act in a certain way to try to produce something that's happening in the future. That is a rational action. But it seems to me that if reason, if rationality has any definition at all, then that definition is 
certainty, that it's evacuated of all uncertainty. So to say that something is probabilistic uh, is to certainly say that there is some some rational aspect to it. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be more likely than something else. It, it has to have some degree of rationality. But there's some aspect to probability that is if not irrational, it is irrational. That it is to say that there is something happening in existence that is mystical, that is mysterious to us as rational beings. And to act at all, to conjure within ourselves the compulsion to choose to act on a world that is fundamentally mysterious to us, a future that is fundamentally mysterious to us, is to call upon, is to conjure an act of faith out of ourselves, to say, I choose, despite my lack of knowing, to act nonetheless, to produce and come what may, I am acting on the world. I, I, I feel like there's there's as much of an element of mysticism shot through all of humanity as much as there is an element of rationality.